this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Uh, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would love it if you would pull a Bible out and follow along with us. And there's some blue Bibles kind of scattered in some of the seats in front of you. Those are available for you as well. Of course, a, a bit of a briefer message this morning, given our City Roots project update. But man, the Lord can do a lot of really cool things in 20 minutes. So let's see. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, For neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we are impressed again by your providence, the timeliness of this passage in our series we've been in since the fall. Um, And we do ask, Lord, that you would Help us understand that this passage at the end of the day is such a a blessed exhortation or series of exhortations and show us even how restful it is to be faithful in the kind of ways that Jesus is calling for here, especially with our money. Lord, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would work in great power, open our minds and hearts to receive this uh, word with thanksgiving and be changed. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This past Tuesday was Valentine's Day, which I think might be becoming the judgiest holiday on our calendar right now. Boy, are there a lot of ways these days to incorrectly observe that day, Uh, failing to get a gift for your boo in a timely fashion, making insensitive social media posts that fail to consider that not everybody has a boo, you know? Um, Of course, every year there seems to be memes and comments about how we celebrate a Christian martyr by giving each other chocolates. But I was thinking about this, it's kind of always been a little bit judgy, at least as far as I can recall in elementary school, I can remember being faintly disappointed with the kids who, we, we always did this like everyone brings a card and candy and some kids brought like a single chocolate kiss, you know, I'm like, eh, I don't know if that meets the threshold, you know, the, the requirements for this Valentine's Day exchange. Don't judge me, but in honor of Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about the heart. We're going to talk about the heart. Yes, this passage is about treasure. It's about money on some level. It's about lamps. There might be some, I don't know, witty opportunities here for Ikea. I'm not sure. But it's really about the heart. And actually, there's a real sense, thematically, when you look at it broadly, in which the entire Sermon on the Mount is about the heart and about our affections, because following Jesus is a matter of the heart, not about external righteousness. 
So two questions this morning as we investigate this passage. Two questions. How can we have, you might say, kingdom hearts? And then secondly, how should we invest in the kingdom? How can we have kingdom hearts? And then secondly, how should we invest in the kingdom? Let's start with that first question. How can we have kingdom hearts? We have said throughout this entire series that as you walk with Jesus, he changes your heart, and then we bear fruit in keeping with that heart change. That's the trajectory. It turns out that part of following Jesus involves what we might call a new investment plan, a new investment portfolio when it comes to how we use our stuff, primarily in the context of this passage, our money, but also our time, our talents, you name it. And it's a plan that Jesus then uses to affect the kind of heart change that we're talking about. Here's the plan. It's pretty straightforward. You could probably preach this message, no problem. Instead of trying to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which isn't that wise because they're fleeting, they get destroyed. You see that in the text, verse 19. Instead of doing that, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 20. There you have it. Can we go ahead and admit that this plan makes zero sense outside of a transcendent theistic worldview. I mean, if, if this world is all there is, then by all means invest everything in it. Why would you not? And frankly, invest it hedonistically. And invest it in whatever makes you, as far as you can tell, happy. If it's leisure and fancy toys, invest in that. If it's vocational opportunities and accomplishments, invest in that. If it's sexual fulfillment, invest in that. Which is why it's not all surprising to see the prioritization of hedonism in our day. The more kind of secular we become, in other words, the more we start to reject a transcendent theistic worldview, the more we publicly prioritize ourselves and lionize other people who do the same. We celebrate confidence as something of a chief virtue, even as the meaning of the word starts to become a bit blurry and at times starts to feel like selfishness. Increasingly, this is interesting, increasingly our heroes are those who kind of champion themselves and do things their way, etc., etc., we worship, to quote Madonna's introduction to a musical act at the Grammys, the shocking and the scandalous, and kind of fittingly here, I suppose, she was introducing the song Unholy, the top 40 song Unholy. All of this, I got to say, makes all the sense in the world, if this world is all there is. Sure, all of these pursuits might be fleeting. I mean, even if we don't believe in God, we still understand that we're going to die, and we're not taking our stuff. But it's the only opportunity that we have to make meaning in an otherwise, honestly, meaningless world. But this world is not all that there is, according to Jesus. 
In fact, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, in the first 12 verses of chapter 5, Jesus consoled his disciples by reminding them that despite the troubles they're experiencing in this world, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it wasn't, don't worry, your external circumstances are going to get better any minute now. That was not the consolation. The consolation is, they, actually, they, they, they could be worse, you never know, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. In one sense, that kingdom is now inaugurated by Jesus when he was born into this world, what we talk about as the incarnation, but in a sense, that kingdom is still coming, seeing as our final place as God's kingdom people will arrive when Jesus returns. And this is a place described in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, as a new heaven and a new earth, as well as the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If the consolation from Jesus is, don't worry, the kingdom of heaven is yours, I cannot think of a better way to be consoled by this promise than to have kingdom-minded and essentially kingdom-located hearts. And how do we have these kingdom hearts? Jesus tells us, by laying up for ourselves kingdom of heaven treasure. Why? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I have a kingdom heart, locate your treasure in the kingdom, and then your heart will follow. Did anyone else play this stock market game? I'm not talking about the real life stock market game, but we did this in, I think, fifth grade in California. We were given maybe $2 in fake money through a computer program, and then we invested it in a stock, and we tracked it for a semester, and whoever's stock was the most valuable at the end, they won some sort of prize. It was something like that, and let me tell you, from that point forward, every morning, I would just just, I'm dating myself, I would sprint down the driveway, pick up a physical newspaper, that's what we had in the mid-90s, I would pick up the newspaper, and I would just go right to the money section to see how Dell Technologies fared the previous day in trading. I skipped the sports section of all the things to go to the money section and check the stock report, don't be hating, Dell Dell Technologies was a very strong choice in the mid-90s, let me tell you. Why did I skip the sports section and go right to the business section? Because I had some treasure in it. Two dollars of fake treasure. And so my heart followed. Do you see this? I was captured by a world I didn't even know existed two weeks ago. If you want to have a kingdom heart, invest your treasure in the kingdom. And oh, by the way, as your kingdom heart develops, you want to invest even more of your treasure into the kingdom. It's this cycle that gloriously starts to feed itself. For many of us, I realize that thinking about a kingdom heart might be analogous to looking at a Picasso. I mean, you can see some structure there, but 
the concept is still a little bit abstract. Patrick Schreiner's definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, basically the same thing, is therefore, I think, quite useful here. And it comes from his very excellent book called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. We can think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Three pillars. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So accepting that definition, which I think is the best definition I've seen after kind of looking into this topic for a long time, we don't have time this morning to get too far into it, but if we, if we will accept that definition, what's a kingdom heart? A kingdom heart is the heart of someone rightly beholding and loving King Jesus and loving the king's people, broadly speaking, the church, and then loving and longing for the king's place, the fully consummated kingdom place that we talked about in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. A kingdom heart is someone that's loving King Jesus and loving the king's people and loving and longing for the king's place. A kingdom heart is pretty great, isn't it? I mean, it's the pathway to genuine joy in a world that's fraught with hardships, sometimes hardships on account of following Jesus. It's actually, it ends up being very helpful assurance that we are indeed the king's people and will be part of the people that Jesus saves and, and brings into his kingdom place when he returns. So joyful, such helpful spiritual assurance. If you're looking for examples of what it looks like to invest accordingly, to lay up our treasure in heaven, we actually have a couple of very broad examples in these next two cadences that follow. They're very broad. We're kind of flying at 35,000 feet here, so you're going to have to do the work to apply these more specifically, but I want to go ahead and look at these broad examples that get you started. So the first question is, how can we have kingdom hearts? And then we said, well, you've got to invest your treasure in the kingdom. So here's the second question. Well, then how should we invest in the kingdom? What does that look like? That language, invest in the kingdom, is like almost a meme at this point. In the worst cases, we associate it with manipulative televangelists. You know, invest in the kingdom. And, and the way that you invest is you buy this like five set DVD thing that has, you know, powerful Holy Spirit teaching, and then they, they send you a tote with a mug and, and some other paraphernalia in the, in the mail, and, and so on and so forth. But look at verses 22 and 23. This will kind of help us better understand what it looks like to be investing in the kingdom. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. There are three contrast cadences in our, in our passage that we're kind of ticking off three in a, in a row here. Three contrast cadences, and they're all tied together by this treasure theme, the second one that we're looking at being by far the most enigmatic and honestly complicated to understand what Jesus is saying here, but let's give it a good shot. I, metaphorically speaking, is very similar to the heart in that it directs, or in this case, sheds light on. 
the rest of the body. And by healthy, that's probably not the best word to translate the Greek here. By healthy, we're talking about an eye that essentially has a generous kingdom of heaven disposition. It's integrated. It's kingdom of heaven-esque, and it's therefore a generous eye. And in that generous eye, influences it shed light on the rest of the body, everything that we do. So, if you have a generous eye, in contrast to a bad eye full of self-oriented darkness, your whole body will be dispositioned accordingly. So, how do we invest in the kingdom? How do we lay up for ourselves heavenly treasure? We have this generous disposition. It affects our whole body. It affects the decisions that we make. It affects our actions, the actions that we take with our time and our money and our talents. And it even affects the company that you keep. Since good eye, you might say, generous disciples spend time with people in order to bless them, while those with an evil eye hobnob with people in order to be blessed. One of the under-discussed ways to discern kingdom-heartedness is to consider actually who you spend your time with. If you throw money at some causes, but then you invest all of your time, you know, socializing with the elites, people that you think will get you somewhere and bless you, you probably have an eye problem. Where does this generous disposition come from? How do we get it? It comes from experiencing the generosity of God. The one who, because he so loved the world, John 3.16, gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whereas the Apostle Paul eventually puts things in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become so rich. When you get to know Jesus, here's what happens. You get to know his generosity. Generosity played out not only on the cross, as important as that is, but also in, in scene after scene of Jesus' earthly ministry as he ministered to people on the margins, the sick, the poor, sinners, people who were grieving, and so on and so forth. Even the Sermon on the Mount, was an act of generosity. When you think about it, Jesus' willingness to sit with his disciples and teach them profoundly and intentionally. Folks, that is generosity. When you follow Jesus, you get to know his generous heart. And then as you walk with Jesus, he changes you. And then you end up living generously. And in so doing, you lay up treasure in heaven and then your heart follows your treasure. You become consumed with a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is yours and will be yours forever, regardless of how bad your external circumstances might get right now. And then you become unconsumed by highly fraught alternative kingdoms that are passing away. And notice I didn't say detached. You don't get detached. We remain ritually and sacrificially present in this world, but we're not consumed by it. This is really uncomfortable to talk about, but I wanted to mention, almost as an aside, 
that suffering itself is actually one of the primary engines that weans us from worldly consumption and frees us to invest in the kingdom of heaven. I just listened to the New York Times columnist um, Ross Duthit, who is a Catholic, talk about how a six-year, a six-year very significant illness has totally changed the way that he writes about politics and so forth. He still writes, he still talks about it, he still makes some critiques, but he says he's, he's not as consumed by the things that he writes about anymore. And he writes with more generosity and, and softness. Laying up treasures in heaven entails this generous posture, but here's another thing, and now we're looking at this third cadence, this third contrast cadence. It also involves, verse 24, devoting ourselves to God, not money, because you can't serve both. Did you know that you can live generously without spiritual devotion? I'm sure you can all name people who are exactly in that category. They are so generous, maybe more generous than you are. And they don't believe in God at all. And there's a lot of possible reasons for that, right? I mean, sometimes I've talked with people who are in this boat. Uh, maybe they tried kind of a hedonistic, self-concerned lifestyle, and they found it to be very empty. So they're like, well, this isn't working, so why don't I serve people and devote myself to caring for others? And lo and behold, I think by the common grace of God, they found it to be more fulfilling. There's no spiritual devotion. It's just, it just works better. They end up being happier. Or sometimes people just have a strong sense of justice and injustice, and they, they act accordingly, which I would also argue, even if undetected, is a common grace gift from God. So you can be generous without spiritually devoted. But that kind of generosity just won't really give you a kingdom heart, and it's not really the overflow of a kingdom heart either. In fact, there might be more self-concern tucked into that kind of generosity than, than you'd like to admit. And have you considered that it's entirely possible to be generous in some ways while remaining rampantly materialistic and money-serving in other ways? And this is why some of, the, some of the philanthropy that we hear about from people who appear to be self-absorbed feels so off. You know, kind of like one of those characters that we meet in movies who donates money to start a children's museum but is like totally overworking and underpaying his employees it kind of feels like that it's this abased generosity sometimes from people who if you take a look at the strength of jesus's own language must ultimately despise god because they're certainly devoted to their stuff and you can't serve two masters isn't it interesting that you could be generous in some ways, but money could still be your master and still be your God? The only way to invest in the kingdom of heaven is to live generously as you're devoted to the Lord. You see this? As you commune with him and hunger after him in all kinds of ways, prayer and fasting, which we just talked about the last three Sundays, and this is the how of kingdom investment. You can think about it kind of like bike pedals, functioning kind of in tandem with each other. You are generously dispositioned, and you are devoted wholly unto the Lord. Since I need to end and our time is shorter this morning and now this afternoon, I'll just simply ask you this question, what will this pedaling look like in your life? What does it look like right now? What will it look like? What will it look like to have a generous eye while being wholly devoted unto the Lord and not 
serving your money. It will look different for different people, so it's important that we don't just try to copy or compare or anything like that. And I'll end with a dare. Try on this kind of generosity and see what happens. Try on this kind of generosity with devotion unto the Lord and see what happens. See what God does and how your heart might be pointed in a heavenly direction, in a more joyful direction. And I'll close with this, and I'm not exaggerating. This is based on, you know, 12, 13 years or so in a sense of pastoral ministry. The most joyful people I know are, generally speaking, the people who have suffered more than others and people who are more generous than others. Not interesting. It seems like the pathway to joy involves usually a lot of suffering, and then a lot of generosity, often because the suffering has weaned them from the world and it's resulted in more generous living in which they hold things of this world more loosely. Amen.